Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 18, I'll start at verse 28, and I'm going down to verse 38. Jesus is arrested. He has been uh, going through these pre-dawn trials in the, in the high priest's residence. That's all illegal according to Jewish law, but none of this is legal. Uh, this is an assassination. This is, a, this is a, 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 an ugly operation that's going on. And so he has gone, first of all, to Annas, who is the old man. He's not presently, quote, the high priest, but he, he's the power behind the throne. And he puts, one, he puts his sons on the high priest's throne, and his son-in-law is Caiaphas, and that's the one who's there now. The Romans keep changing him, thinking they're breaking up the, you know, the political resistance. The, the religion in Israel is the dangerous thing. This is where the riots start. This is where the uprisings. And they gather around the Messiah. You know, that some Messiah will come up and, and uh, have a revolution. And so the Romans are constantly having to work with the religious climate of Israel. So they keep changing their high priests, thinking this will soften the resistance. But Annas is really running the show behind the scenes. Jesus goes there first. He's tied up. He's, he's bound. Um, we, had, we saw that discussion the other day. Um, and some young guy hits him in the face uh, as he's tied and says, is that the way you speak to the high priest? After Jesus does nothing more than, than ask for justice. Um, then he's taken to Caiaphas's, uh, or Caiaphas, I think, probably comes into the meeting room, however they work that out, with some of the Sanhedrin. I don't think they're all there. I'm sure they're not all there. Uh, this whole thing is so illegal, they would never have Gamaliel in there. They would never have Nicodemus in there. They would never have Joseph of Arimathea in there. They'd be outraged. Uh, so they don't have the, the integrous people in there. Um, but they've gathered the, the ones they think will work. So he's also, he's again, he's just in, in Caiaphas' court, that thing erupts. Caiaphas puts on this display of ripping his robes and out being, claiming to be outraged that Jesus says he's the Messiah. And uh, they spit on Jesus, they blindfold him, they spit on him, they hit him in the face, and they say, prophesy to us, you Christ, tell us who hit you. I mean, is that ugly? How do, how do the elders of Israel degrade to that level? And we talked about that. Uh, it's, it's, so having done all of that, they then want to transport Jesus uh, and get him to uh, Pilate. And I'll explain why. There's a reason uh, they, need, they want to take him to Pilate. The high priest's residence, we actually go there when we go to Israel. We'll, we try, I trust we'll go there this, this time. They have found it. It's to, I don't know, my, I'm just trying to guess, but maybe two or 300 yards to the west of the southwest corner of the Temple Mount. There was a walkway, a shielded walkway for the high priest so he could walk unclean, I mean, not touching anything unclean to the temple. I think they took Jesus when they decided, all right, we're going, we want him crucified. They walked him across that. I think they walked over the temple grounds, which are uh, 36 acres, but the, the temple gates are closed at nine, until nine o'clock in the morning. So there's nobody there. You can go through this process unseen. That's my guess. And then at the north end of, the, of that courtyard, that great 36 acre stone courtyard, is a huge Roman fortress. And it's been built there overlooking the temple because the temple's where trouble happens. <laughs> this is where the riots break out. This is where stuff happens. So they've got this massive fort uh, right there uh, looking, leering over the, the, the courtyards and a stairway down so the soldiers can rapidly be on the temple platform and deal with a problem if it emerges. That's what saved Paul's life. You remember? Yeah, he was being mugged and torn to pieces uh, on that platform. Down come the soldiers. Boom, they, they step in, you know, 
spears and point, uh, swords at these people, backing them off, and they're all just throwing dust in the air. I don't know where they got the dust on that either. I'm not sure how they did that. Um, but they're, and, and they grab Paul, take him up the stairway, and then he has a conversation back down to the people uh, and preaches to them, which causes more consternation. Um, I think they took Jesus to that. And I think Pilate came out, knowing the situation, and I think he starts talking to the people from there. So probably somewhere up on the stairway, uh, talking down to the people. Verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium. That's that uh, Antonia Fortress I just described to you, and I'll tell you why it's a Praetorium in a minute. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium. So that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. You can't touch anything that's had death associated with it. And boy, people have been tortured and executed in that building. There's probably blood on the walls. Uh, So they don't want to go in and be defiled. And notice they haven't eaten Passover, and it's almost sunrise. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's a bit vague, wouldn't you say? So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. That's not true. Uh, Their law, and Pilate knew it, allowed them to kill people how? By stoning. I mean, just ask Stephen. (laughs) Uh, they, and by the way, there's no evidence they asked permission to stone Stephen. They just took him out, stoned him to death, and there was no Roman reaction uh, that we're aware of at all. Uh, so the idea that they can't, that yes, they, they, they need permission. They, they should have permission. But that they can kill somebody is absolutely true. So when they say that, Pilate recognizes why they're really there. I'll tell you in a minute. To fulfill, John comments, to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Do you remember Jesus saying anything about how he would die? He talked about they must lift up the Son of Man. Remember that? Yeah, he's talking about being lifted up on a cross. Therefore, Pilate entered into the praetorium again and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Would you say, are you the king of the Jews? Jews? Jesus answered. Now, watch what he answers. He answers his question with a question. Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Now, I'll give you my translation later, but would you say that? Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Notice that question. Now we'll go on. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. Now everybody except Pilate in this thing is Jewish. When he talks about the Jews, who's he talking about? Religious leaders, yes, absolutely. Keep that in mind. That's, that mistake has really caused trouble over history. I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Actually, I'll show you what he says in a minute. Je- Je- Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, these leaders outside at the, uh, on the court, and said to them, I find no guilt in him. People ask questions. Our, our, we're talking today about the right question. People ask questions for different reasons. One person might ask a question as a way of attacking an opponent in a debate. That question is meant to confuse their opponent or expose their lack of understanding. Another person might ask a question because they genuinely want to know the answer. But there is also a third reason people ask questions. 
Someone might ask a question in order to help someone else discover the answer for themselves. In other words, there's questions that help a person find the answer for themselves. At the right time, the right question can lead someone in the right direction. The passage we're reading today is full of questions. Pilate asks most of them, and some aren't sincere. But what is of real interest to us is the question Jesus asked Pilate. He used a question to expose Pilate's heart. He actually reached out to his captor and gave him the opportunity to discover the truth that would bring him eternal life. In doing that, Jesus was modeling something important. He was showing us how to lead someone toward God by asking the right question. A praetorium is the place where the, a special group of soldiers is stationed. Who are these soldiers? They are the bodyguard for the leader. If it's the Caesar, if it's the governor there in Israel, uh, or his particular residences, if it's, if it's the general of the army, it's that special group. They are elite and they are highly loyal. Every, uh, to this day, uh, nations all over the world have an elite guard. Uh, you know, you've got your average run-of-the-mill uh, army, but they could turn on the leader. And so you have this group that's highly skilled, very, very powerful, and very loyal. You also pay them very well, may I add. Uh, that's part of their loyalty. And uh, so they are fiercely devoted to protecting you. Um, when we go to uh, Israel and go to Masada, have you heard the term Masada? It's this great rock out there by the, the Dead Sea, this high thing with just sheer sides uh, on the thing. And it's Herod built a, a, a fortress palace there, a uh, big, big elaborate thing with water storage and grain and everything. It's where in 73 AD, uh, 900 and something uh, zealots uh, committed suicide when the Romans finally uh, uh, broke the walls down and were coming in the next day. You remember this story? It's quite a powerful story, very, very touching uh, situation, uh, how they did that. Uh, well, if you, when you go to Masada, one of the things, it's still just to me, it's chilling. We, you, you stand there, and particularly at the north end, you look out, and there around it is this brown line going around the entire thing, miles of this brown line. It's the Roman siege wall. It's still there. I mean, in America, we'd have all taken bricks, you know, taken the blocks home, you know, put our name on it and stuff, uh, spray painted it. I mean, who knows? You're not going to leave that thing. There it is, 2,000 years old. It's just some of them, have, they've fallen down, kind of boom, but they're all there. And you can just see this thing all the way around, and they left it in 73 A.D., and it's still there. And then around it, outside the, the wall, are eight uh, enclosures, wall enclosures. And you can still see the round circles where the Romans put their tents, you know, in each of these. And you had eight of those around. But one of those is up on the, the high ground here to the, to the west. And it's much larger. And in the corner of this enclosure is an enclosure. That's where the general I think, was it Flavius Silva was the one when they, when they finally conquered this thing? Uh, or Titus started it, I think. Um, so in this corner, you have this secure area. This one, this camp is the Praetorium. They are the bodyguard for the general. You follow this? Okay. So, the, so, the, so where is the Praetorium in, in Jerusalem? It's, it's that temple. I mean, pardon me. It's, yeah, it's the fortress, Antonio Fortress, right next to the temple. This is the, this is the strong place. This is where the governor would go in a crisis. This is where his, his loyal troops are. Knowing that these leaders would be hesitant to enter a building where executions took place, Pilate stepped outside to speak to the gathering. He asked, what formal charge are you bringing against this man? He uses that word. He uses the word, in other words, you better have not disturbed me at this time in the morning. I mean, the sun's not up. At least it hasn't broken. I think the sky's light, and I don't think the sun has come. So you better not get me out here and, and, and to this thing without a serious charge. What formal charge? By asking for a formal charge, his question contained a subtle warning that he would be upset if they brought someone that early in the morning who had not done something very bad. They replied, unless this man was doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. 
Yet Pilate was still not convinced. He, he, he assumed they were irate over some violation of the law of Moses. And he knew their law contained a system of punishments which included stoning for serious violations. So he challenged them. You take him and judge him according to your own law. He was telling them he didn't want to be involved. But then the real ugly reason that those religious leaders had brought Jesus to him was exposed. They replied, it is not lawful for us to kill anyone. That was not true. But they all, need, all they needed was permission and they could have stoned Jesus. When Stephen was stoned, no permission was sought and the Romans didn't seem to care. When Pilate heard that, he must have realized that, that what they really wanted from him was a crucifixion. Only the Romans could do that. Isn't that ugly? They didn't just want him dead. They want to hurt him really bad. They want to torture him. The, the anger, the vindictiveness, the hatred, this, this is vicious. We don't just want him dead. Because stoning is pretty clean. They push him off a high thing, he probably dies in the fall, and then you throw a rock or two on him. But no, they don't want that. They want, they want a crucifixion. That's why, that's why John comments right there and says, this is to fulfill what he said was going to happen. Because it's odd. John reminds us that Jesus prophesied that he would be crucified by inserting this statement so that Jesus, so that the word which he spoke might be fulfilled by signifying what, by what death he was about to die. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus had revealed how he would die. The chief priests and the elders began to accuse Jesus. They said such things as, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Is that true? What did he say when they tried? They tried to lure him into this very deal, didn't they? They were trying to get him in trouble. And, and so they said, should we pay taxes or not? And he replied, what, what did he say? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. And he just flummoxed them. I mean, they're up. And I mean, he just, he got them. But here they're lying. They're just plain old outright lying. And he said, and, then, and, he is, and saying he himself is the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, a king. The first charge of misleading the nation was meaningless. It was a matter of religious opinion, and Pilate knew it. The second charge of campaigning against paying taxes to Rome was also unfounded. Had Jesus, not been, had Jesus been doing that, the Romans would have discovered it long before and stopped it. So he focused on the third charge that Jesus had declared himself to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews. He walked back into the fortress and summoned Jesus. And once inside, he asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he means, are you the Jewish Messiah? That's what he's asking. That was the only charge which needed to be investigated. Because if true, Jesus might lead an uprising against Rome. Jesus responded to Pilate's question with a question. He asked, are you saying this from yourself, or did others tell you about me? Now, that's literal. That's exactly what it says. Are you saying this from yourself, or did others tell you about me? In effect, he was asking Pilate, does that question come from your heart? Do you really want to know who I am? Or are you simply repeating the charges that have been made against me? Jesus did not ask that question to be evasive. He had no intention of trying to protect himself. So there can only be one reason for such a question. He was reaching out to Pilate in order to give him the opportunity to be saved. Remember what I said? It's just amazing. Here is the Roman governor. Here is this hideous situation. And Jesus is reaching out and saying, do you really want to know? Wow. What a Lord we have. What an example we have. And before we reject the thought that Pilate was, ca was capable of any sort of spiritual interest, we need to remember that on that very day, God also reached out to his wife through a dream. While sitting on the judgment seat in the midst of the trial, Pilate received a note from her which read, Let nothing happen to you and to that just one. For this day, now yours will all say, if you look at that passage at night, it, has not, it does not, but the translators figure, well, you have dreams at night, right? And I don't know, I would, I would appreciate it if they wouldn't help us that much. Just say what it says, leave it alone. For this day I suffered many things in a dream because of him. Think of this. God's working with his family. 
He's literally sitting on what's called the bima, the judgment seat. You're going through this thing. He's trying not to crucify him. He is already uncomfortable with the whole deal. And somebody brings him a note from his wife and she says, Have not, let nothing happen. She, it's actually a prayer to you or to this just one. For this night, I, for this day, I have had, I've been greatly troubled in a dream. She's, she's had a vision. The Holy Spirit's reaching to the family. Wow. The conversation. I want to take you further. I got to show you this. You've got to see the dialogue between Jesus and Paul so you understand what's going on. Pilate would have known that many in Judaism were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. A descendant of David who would deliver them from the Roman oppressors. That was one of the political dangers any Roman governor assigned to Israel would have to defend against. Don't think Pilate knows nothing about Judaism. Uh, he knows more than he wants to know about Judaism. And he knows the Messiah, messianic thing. This is, a, this is a steady problem for the Romans. Every so often some zealot would declare himself to be the Messiah and try to lead his followers against their foreign oppressors. On various occasions during his ministry, Jesus had rejected those who tried to force him into that role. When, we're, when crowds saw the power he exercised, they would press him to be their king of Israel, the promised son of David. And though he never denied he was the Messiah, in fact, he will admit to it and say it in bold terms at times, Jesus understood that his present assignment was to die as a sacrifice for human sin. Only later would he return in power to rule the earth. And we're waiting for that to happen. Let's, let's think of an example or two of this. He's up north in the Galilee. He's on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And he multiplies five loaves of barley bread and two little dried fishes. And he breaks them and feeds ten to 15,000 people. Not only with a little taste, but until they're full. That's, that's just amazing. The, the power of this is just stunning, and everyone's watching it happen in front of their eyes. It's like nobody pulled a hocus-pocus thing in the back room. He's doing it as they're watching it, and it's just like, wow. It says they wanted to take and do what? Make him king. In fact, they were determined to force him to be their king. It gets ugly. They go, you have got the power. We see what you could do. You are to lead us. And they weren't going to let him leave. They literally, he became their captive. And the problem is, his own disciples got into the act going, you know, you would make a great Messiah, you know. And, and he, so he takes them down to the beach. No joke. I mean, I'm not, this is in there. And he takes them down to the beach and says, get out of here. Get in the boat. No, Go. I'll be fine, leave. And he gets them off and gets them to go out in the water and then the storm happens, you know, that's another story. Um, and he goes up onto the mountain to pray. He gets out of the crowd. There's, there's still milling. He gets up there and he prays. And then late in the, in the nighttime, he sneaks out. How did he get out? He walked across the lake. They hadn't planned on that. Right. Talk about an escape route. Were you watching the road? I was watching the road. How'd he go? On the water? Yeah, he literally walks out the lake and gets in the boat. Anyway, that's Jesus. They were trying there. Palm Sunday. It's another one. All this Hosanna, son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. Rise up, Messiah. This is a very dangerous moment. People are going, tell them to stop. Tell them to stop. We're going to get arrested. And what did Jesus do? He gets on a little donkey, you know, <laughs> and rides in according to the prophecy of Zechariah. Behold, your, your, your king comes humble and seated on the foal of a donkey. And so he comes in and basically goes, no, I won't be your king like that. Not yet. Not yet. Constant struggle. <laughs> so they're accusing him of that very thing. And he has clearly not done it. Pilate's answer to Jesus' question, do you really want to know who I am, revealed his confusion. He said, I am not a Jew, meaning I am a Roman, and why would I care about your Jewish Messiah? And then he added, your people and the chief priests delivered you to me. What did you do? 
if most of the people in Israel did not understand that the Messiah must die for their sins, then Pilate certainly didn't understand that fact either. To him, the idea of the king of the Jews meant a Jewish king who would try to liberate his people from Rome. So he replied that, of course, his question contained no personal hope, because from what he understood, Jewish messiahs wanted to kill Roman governors. Yet he was still confused as to why the Sanhedrin would hate a potential messiah so deeply that they would want him crucified. That's why he asked Jesus what he had done that made them so angry. Jesus spoke directly to Pilate's confusion by explaining to him what kind of Messiah he was. This is as, as Jesus' response goes on now. You've got to watch what he's doing. He's going after his heart. He told him he wasn't a Messiah who hated Romans. And he wasn't trying to start a revolution. He wasn't trying to conquer territory or set up a new political order. And to prove his point, he observed that if he were oriented toward violence, his followers would have fought to prevent him from being arrested. Pilate must have known about Jesus before they met. Look, you have to recognize that. That fort of theirs overlooks the, the whole platform of the temple for a reason, because that's where trouble starts. And so when there's great crowds, when they're stirring, when they see a speaker going down there, the Roman soldiers are watching. They'll, they may well walk out there and listen from the perimeters. They're, they're keeping track on what's going on here. And you can't have tens of thousands of people gathering around somebody. You can't have the whole, half the city lining a road and going, Hosanna, Hosanna, and not have the Romans notice. You understand me? They know, who is that guy? What on earth is going on out here? There's some Jesus of Nazareth. And it, but don't tell me he didn't know his name. This isn't the first time he's encountered this. And to prove his point, he observed that if he were oriented toward violence, his followers would have would, uh, fought to prevent him from being arrested. Massive crowds had gathered in the temple courts and lined the roadways when Jesus passed by. Roman guards would have been watching those gatherings with suspicion. So when Jesus suggested that he could have ordered his followers to resist arrest, Pilate would have known that this was no idle threat. Here's what Jesus actually said to Pilate. My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that I would not now have been delivered to the Jews. And my kingdom is not, and notice he threw in, and this is in the Greek, he threw in, not at this time, from here, because it will be from here, hallelujah. He'll rule the earth with a rod of iron, uh, and all, all rebellion will be dealt with, but that's not yet. He was removing the political meaning of the title king of the Jews, while assuring Pilate that he was indeed a king over a spiritual kingdom. Pilate responded by asking, and this is the literal. I said I'd tell you the literal. Pilate says, not then a king, are you? Not then a king, are you? Sounds like Hamlet, doesn't it? Yeah, it I like the way he just said it. I mean, just leave it alone. Not then a king, are you? He, he meant, did you just say that you're not really a king? And when, Peter, when Jesus had said he had no earthly kingdom, Pilate thought he was saying he was not a genuine king. But Jesus quickly corrected him. You say that I am a king for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, that I might witness to the truth. I've come into the world. Now, that's a scary statement. I've come from somewhere else, from heaven. I have been born to do this, to proclaim the truth about God. All those who are of the truth hear my voice. In effect, he told Pilate, God sent me from heaven to build a kingdom by proclaiming the truth about him and drawing together those who believe me. By saying that, that he was inviting Pilate to join his kingdom. All that, Ro that Roman governor had to do at that point in the conversation was to ask the right question. What is the truth about God that you were sent to proclaim? And he would have been on his way to becoming a member of that eternal kingdom. But sadly, Pilate asked a different question. He stepped into the realm of philosophical speculation and asked, what is truth? 
He may have said the words with a sour or mocking uh, tone, meaning that he doubted that there is such a thing as absolute truth, and that cynicism would certainly include all spiritual truth about God. He seems to have come to the conclusion that Jesus was a deceived idealist. Yet as the morning progressed, he gave every evidence of trying to avoid executing Jesus. It appears he was also frightened. In fact, John says later on his, fright, his fear increased even more. There was something about Jesus that worried him. So no sooner had he said this than he went back outside and bluntly announced to the religious leaders. Look at this carefully. I find not one crime in him. That word one is in the Greek. I find not one crime in him. He's just going right at those leaders, learning to listen. Have you ever noticed that some people never give you an opportunity to talk to them about God? Every time the conversation gets even close to something spiritual, they move it in another direction. Or if you mention something about God, there is no response, as if you had said nothing at all. That is no accident. They're telling you they don't want to talk about it. People are far more aware of God than we realize. No one is totally ignorant of the existence of a spiritual dimension. Because over the course of our lives, all humans have strange experiences where it seems we are protected or heard something said to us, but we don't know where it came from. Let me ask you, at some point in your life, you, it was a, there was a protection. I mean, you should be dead, or, you, or, or whatever. And where did that come from, and you were protected? Or you're in some situation, and it's like somebody talked to you, and you, at the time, maybe didn't even have a clue who it was. But there was just a sense like, I, somebody's here. Or somebody's with me. How many have had such experiences? Raise them high. Because it's virtually everybody in every service. I want you to understand something. That isn't in federal way. That isn't in Washington State. That isn't in the United States. That's all over the planet Earth. That is all over planet Earth. God is drawing men and women all over planet Earth. You'll never talk to someone who hasn't had some kinds of spiritual uh, experiences. They're, they're just part of life. And on top of that, the hugeness and complexity of our universe makes the idea that it all came from nothing very hard to believe. It takes a lot of work to extinguish the idea of God and, and try to come up with an explanation of how all this came from nothing. Let, let me run a deep philosophical statement by you. Just hang on now. You brace yourself. It's going to get complex. Nothing comes from nothing. Did I lose you? <laughs> nothing comes from nothing. People are having the hardest time figuring out where did this universe come from? It's huge. It's orderly. There is a system of laws, not only on planet Earth, but at the farthest reaches that we can find. Same system of laws. It's beautiful and, and ferocious. It's amazing. The amount of power, the, the mass of it, is just completely beyond our comprehension. The complexity of it. And now you're stuck with, wow, where did this come from? Well, it's an accident. It's, um, people, I mean, you really are stuck. One fellow has a thing called string theory, and, 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 and the idea is, well, we're just one universe among many universes. We're all connected by some kind of cosmic string. Do you know what that's called? It's called kicking the can down the road. In other words, well, we're, we're part of a bunch of other ones, too. Where did they come from? You haven't answered anything. You've just made it worse. Or there's those who say, well, it just always was. Right. <laughs> Doink. You've just ignored the question. Nothing comes from nothing. Everyone knows this. 
Nobody is looking and living in all of this that isn't aware like, wow, this is amazing. This is huge. Nobody's, nobody's, nobody's not missing that point. Everyone has awareness. A causeless, accidental universe actually takes more faith and careful reasoning than believing that a spiritual source created it. So when we talk to someone, we're never talking to a person with no spiritual awareness. Remember that. They are as spiritual in their essential nature as you and I. Their body, soul, and spirit, just like you are. Though they may not be aware of how they know some of the things they know. Depending on where that person is on their journey through life, he or she may have already developed an anger toward God, or grown fearful of him, or have been taught all sorts of false things about him. Seldom do you or I talk to someone who has not already developed an opinion about God and who therefore is likely to react one way or another the moment the subject comes up. And some are seeking to know more about him. Jesus says it there in John chapter 3. That's a very telling passage. Uh, It starts with John 3.16. Uh, God so loved the world. But he, he goes on just with this deep discussion right there. And he, and he says, those who, uh, do, those who are uh, doing evil hate the light. In other words, when they see something of the truth of God, some, some evidence of the presence of God, he says, those who do evil hate the light so that, uh, and, 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 and go away from the light so that their deeds may not be reproved. Actually, the word is that they would be exposed to God and he would correct them. In other words, the bottom line, the basic human motivation is they know if they get too close to him, he will make them stop. You follow that? It's not complicated. Just basic human stuff. And then it says, but he that doeth truth, in other words, he who is trying to walk in the truth, he knows. He who is seeking to know the truth. He says, he that doeth truth cometh to the light. When he sees or she sees a revelation of the God, sees something true of God, and they recognize it, they draw toward it. So that there were, it may be manifested that their works were wrought, done in God. In other words, that they have been trying to walk in God and move toward him all along. It doesn't mean they're sinless. It doesn't mean they're going to heaven because of this. But it tells you that there are people whose heart is integrous. They want to know the truth. This has everything to do with integrity. That those who are walking away from God, it isn't a matter of, of, of knowledge. It is a matter of, I don't want him messing in my life. So they're walking away from him to get away from his standards of living. They don't want to do that. So it's a game, isn't it? We know he's there. But some want him, and some don't want him. And so, those, so that those who draw to the truth. So what, when the, when, what, what is Jesus doing right here? Here's Pilate. He says, are you king of the Jews? And Pilate, uh, Jesus goes right into Pilate's heart and basically says, do you want to know the truth? Pilate goes, am I a Jew? Why would I want to know? Why would I want a Jewish Messiah? You You just hate my guts and want to kill me. Jesus goes, no, I'm not that kind of king. I don't have an earthly kingdom. I was sent from heaven to tell the truth about God and gather those who want to know. Do you want to know? Do you see what he's doing? He's evangelizing Pilate. Isn't this awesome? (laughs) Who would do this but Jesus? He's evangelizing this man. By the way, this isn't the last person he'll lead to eternal life before he's dead. Do you follow that? Who else is he going to lead? Help me. Thief on the cross, yeah, he's, Jesus is hanging there on the cross, and the guy next to him has a conversation with him, leads him to Christ. <laughs> but there's another, I think. Yeah, Simon of Cyrene, who has to carry his cross piece and follow him. Simon, I think, became the head of a godly family. Amazing. He, you can't, and no matter where you put him, he's watching. No matter where you put him, he's watching for opportunities. To the last breath in his body, he will lead someone, if he can, to Christ. Hallelujah. What a, what a savior we serve. 
That doesn't mean they're not sinners like everyone else, but it does mean that they have an honest desire to know the truth about him. And, the, and listen, the courage to let the facts take them where they will. It takes courage to walk toward God, doesn't it? Well, you, it doesn't take you very long to realize I've got to count the cost on this thing. There's a price to pay for me to walk with God. Never discount people. Never assume from outward things that they're not interested. I, I'm thinking right now of a, of a, this was years ago. Mary and I, when we were in, in school, uh, had an opportunity to go on a study trip around the world for just a little bit more money from what we would have paid for our normal classes. We could go around the world for five months. Well, you weren't going to pass that up. And one of the places we, we stayed where for uh, seven weeks was India. We were in a, a city called Allahabad, which is up in the north central part. Stayed in a, 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 just a, a camp for, for students, real rough place. I mean, simple. Um, and uh, went, to, went to school and, and learned uh, economics of emerging nations. While we were there, by the way, we got to meet Indira Gandhi. Yeah, at her home. I don't know who wrangled that of invitation, but it's her home city. And we went, we went there, and uh, boy, the Mary, Mary was, all the girls were in saris, you know, and, and we had this gal, we called her auntie, taking care of us, and she looked at Mary, and she goes, oh, no, 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 no. And she has to rearrange her sari and get it right, because we're going to meet Indira Gandhi, the prime minister. You know, and, and so we went to her house. She served us tea. We were there almost an hour. What a, what a gracious lady. It was, it was awesome. While we were there, someone invited us to a, a wedding. And there were 30 of us students. And it was a wedding of a man who was one of the uh, uh, judiciary. You know, there's a Supreme Court there. I don't know if it was over the, the, uh, the, the province we were in or if, I, I don't know. But he was a high-placed judge. And he was having a wedding. And this is one of the places that I, I have a picture in my mind when I think of, of ancient Isra weddings in Israel with the bridegroom coming and the, and the lamps lit and all of that. I always think of India because that's what was happening. And, and so we were there in the evening and here came this procession of the bridegroom. And they all had lamps, you know, and there was flutes and drums and all of this beautiful music coming. And they came into the courtyard and the, 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 the bride, you know, she's hidden away waiting and all of this. It was really, really cool. Well, in the course of it, I got to talk. I was, began talking with this man. And he said, come on in my office. And I went back and he and I talked late into the night. Now, he's a Hindu. And, but he wanted to talk about God. And so we're talking about these things of God. And at one point, he said something that really, my, my antenna went up, we're, we're talking about, about Jesus and all of this. He wanted to know, you know what I knew about Jesus. And I told him my experience. And, you know, some of these things that have been in my life. And that kind of thing. And, then I, and I think I said something about there's so many religions. So many different opinions. And then he said, yes, but only one can be right. Now that is not a Hindu comment. That is not a Hindu comment. And immediately, immediately I thought, and I even said to him, you're not very far from the kingdom. I met with him again. In fact, I corresponded with him for several years. And he would have kept it up, but I'm a terrible correspondent. I'm ashamed of that to this day. A Hindu judge wants to talk about God. Are you listening? Do you spot it? Do you, care, do you categorize somebody? Do you push it out? Or do you watch for the heart? Jesus constantly took a person and watched for an opening, not assumed they were closed. You following this? He's mentoring us, people. He's, he's showing us how we're to be, how we're to live with people. All right? Learning to watch. The clearest evidence of this is when someone who has stonewalled for years never allowing the conversation to turn toward God, or angrily accusing those who try to bring up the subject of judging them, suddenly changes their mind. They begin to drop hints or ask leading questions like, so, why do you believe in this God of yours? I had that exact question uh, asked me. Have you? 
Or, here's another one I was asked, do you really get anything out of going to church? I, uh, someplace far away, not here, and gathered with people, uh, had gone to church. We'd gone into this church service, and it was a, it was a very uh, sort of stiff, dry church service. And, if, and if, standing out in the foyer afterwards, uh, a, a family member uh, came over to me and looked at me and says, can I ask you a question? Now, you got to know, at this point, Mary and I are already known as the, you know, the weird, ultra-religious members of, this, of the family. Like, we're, we're that. So he comes over to me, and he says, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He says, is that what turns you on? Is, is that, you and Mary, are you all excited about that? Now, I got, I got one of the, these critical moments. I got to be delicate. But if I lie to him, I mislead him. And I had to say, to be honest, I, actually, I'll tell you what I literally said. I said, that's soporific. Um, he knew what the word meant. It, it put sleep-inducing. I said, I, I said, not at all. I said, I, I'm not trying to be critical, but that ain't our religion. What was I telling him? There's more than that. We're not interested in religion. We're interested in relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah. Many years have passed. That relationship with that person right now is moving forward very well toward the Lord. My, my wife is having long correspondence and open hearts. Isn't it beautiful? You never give up. You never give up. Another way people show a spiritual interest is by revealing their personal pain. Sometimes, for no apparent reason, they open up and tell you about some deep personal struggle. How many... You don't even understand. What is it with people that they keep coming up to you and bearing their soul to you? I mean, come on, raise your hands. Yeah. And you think, what, have I got a sign? You know, the office is open? What is wrong with me? Why do you do this? I don't want to. Here's, here's your answer. They have seen something in you that makes them feel safe. They trust and respect you. And you'd be amazed at people. They'll watch you from a distance. You hardly know they know you. But they watch you. And when you walk, not perfectly, you've got your weaknesses. You may even have horrible things you struggle with. But the way you handle life, there's an integrity to it. They see that. They see that. And they see a, they see a tenderness in you. You can hardly hide it. If you're a real Christian, if you're born again, your eyes show. You can't. I mean, I, if, I, if you stuck me in an airport, I, I think I'd go A, B, A, B. I could pick them out. They're just in the eyes. People see that. It's a softness. We, we look vulnerable. We look like sheep, you know. On the other hand, when push comes to shove, we're the ones still standing. So there's a strange strength to us. And yet this strange tenderness in the eyes. They'll see it. They have seen something in you that makes them feel safe. And by opening their heart, they are giving you an opportunity to watch for the place where they need God's care. Years ago, I read a book which compared this kind of careful listening to someone washing a cup. And as they ran their hand along the smooth inside wall, they suddenly felt a fine hairline crack. The author was saying that it can be like that with the human heart. There may be many areas where a person's life seems to be working well. But in the midst of all that smoothness, there's a crack. An emptiness, a confusion, a wound. And the Holy Spirit knows where that crack is. He knows what is broken. He knows the painful questions that have gone unanswered. And as we listen... He may show us that person's heart and at the right time, give us the right question to ask. Do you follow that? Not, not, we, we speak way too soon. We try to give people religious answers way too soon. It, it is so ineffective, frankly. 
uh, to go blasting people with religion, just saying, you know what you need, and just wham them, you know. Uh, it just doesn't work. It usually makes people back off and very uncomfortable. The way you really lead somebody to the Lord is actually open your heart and be real with them. And it will, this same separation thing, this do I want this or do I not? And they'll begin to give you some sort of place. And then you ask the right question and the conversation takes off from there. There is no greater gift than for someone to sit down and listen carefully to you and then ask a careful, thoughtful question. It's a gift. And I think people suffer greatly because no one does it. We have people talk at us. We get herded around one way or another. We get sold stuff. But no one really sits down and listens carefully and kindly. I was... um, teaching at the Bible college and uh, our, this was our first year teaching and they asked Mary and me if we would escort a music group um, from the Bible college on their tour of the Northwest uh, churches uh, and they would sing and they asked me to preach and we went to 22 churches or no 26 churches in 22 days I, <laughs> woo, it was wild um, but it was a great group of, of students, and, and the, the music director had put together beautiful, a beautiful musical based on Zacchaeus, you know, the man in the, in the sycamore tree. Uh, and, and then I was to preach on Zacchaeus. They sang about Zacchaeus, and we went to all these, all these churches. Well, one of the places we went was it's called Old Oak Ranch, and it's the four-square ranch down in, the, in, the north, in north, uh, Cal- Northern California. It's really a great place. And it's one of those, it's one of the, um, the, the camps, it's for Foursquare Camping, where the, the, the supervisor had for years invested in this thing. I mean, this was his baby. He believed in camping. And the camp was developed beautifully. It's a great, great campus. And then he, had, he really hand-picked speakers. He, he was there on site watching the whole thing. He believed in camping. He believed in getting kids to baptize in the Holy Ghost, getting them saved. You know, he, he believed in it, and it, it paid its price for him. I mean, he, he, that was a powerful place. So we're at, at Old Oak Ranch. I had gone through, at that point, a real trauma of leaving the previous church. I've told you about that. They put in somebody who wasn't healthy, and, and I was real angry and hurt and things. I don't recall saying anything to this supervisor, his name was Fred Wymore. I don't recall saying anything to him, but he spotted me. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, uh, son, I'd like you to come up and talk to me. So I went up to his, I'm alone, up to his, his apartment. And he sat down and he says, tell me about yourself. And then I just began to kind of, you know, out came some of my pain and my situation. And I talked about it. And he listened. And he, listened. he didn't talk. He didn't say anything. He didn't, didn't go at me. And correct me, he just listened. And then at some point, he, 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 he looked at me and he said this. He said, young man, you know, I think I know your problem. I said, what is it, sir? He said, you're not willing to die. He said, you've got to die to self. I looked at him and I said, I know. And I don't know how. I can't, I can't kill this thing. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't get it out of my belly. And he prayed for me. I will love him to the last day. He's in heaven now. But what a man. Do you know what a gift that was to me? I had someone who'd listen and ask me and deal with me until he heard the crack in my soul. And he felt that hairline crack. And he went right at it. And he didn't, he didn't pull his punch. He said, young man, you're not willing to die. There is a dying of following Jesus, isn't there? Yeah, I was fighting. I was fighting and I was angry. He said, you've got to die to self. Now, I could have reacted wrongly. But he loved me. I could tell it. There was no, there was, this guy wasn't scolding me. He was telling me the truth, and he'd listened to me. He, he did, that was a big step in my healing. That was a big step in my healing. We need to do that for each other, don't we? 
Probably the biggest obstacle to recognizing spiritual interest comes from assuming that a particular person is not interested. We prejudge them and decide they are not capable of spiritual hunger. They are either too smart or come from a hostile culture or too old and set in their ways or too young to be interested in questions about God or too mean or too wild or too worldly or too successful. In other words, we stop watching for an opportunity rather than start praying that God will provide one. Did you hear it? You and I cannot judge from the exterior of a person. Who would have conceived that you'd talk to Pilate, Pontius Pilate? He's got quite the track record. He has been slaughtering people. Why would you even think of talking to him? Except Jesus did. I don't think Jesus could have proved how wrong it is to prejudge someone else's openness to the gospel more effectively than by reaching out to Pilate. He stood there in front of the governor, having been beaten and spit on in a barracks where Jews were regularly tortured and executed. And in that unlikely setting, to that apparently hopeless man, he asked, do you really want to know who I am? And by that question, he offered him eternal life. He saw a crack in that man's heart and invited him to believe. He never stopped watching for an opportunity. He never saw people as categories. There was never a person he didn't want. He was always listening, always watching, always ready to ask the right question. And so must we. Learning to ask. Why is it important to ask questions? Why isn't it enough to... Drop spiritual hints and let people figure out the answers. It's because a question invites a person to make a decision. Uh, I'm going to underscore that. That is not a small matter. People need to make a decision. You'll find many people have never been asked to make a decision. I find that many people coming out of certain uh, denominations and backgrounds have been raised in a religious environment in which it was assumed they're saved. It was assumed that if they were baptized as a child or if they went to church, they obviously are saved. In fact, you go to Europe, whole countries have been baptized automatically and enrolled in the church when they're born. And in their minds, if there's anything to this nonsense, I'm in. I am a Christian. It's, it's one of the great things crippling Europe in its terms of its Christianity is this, this, this attitude. It's done its damage over a long time now. People need to decide. So you take somebody who comes out of one of those environments and you said, have you, have you, have you reached out and decided to, to surrender and to trust Jesus as your Lord? Have you, have you made that decision? Well, no. You know, would you like to? Well, well yes, I would. Do you understand that he died for you on the cross? You'll put your arms around that cross and trust him the rest of your life. Have you reached out, not just observed it as a fact, but reached out and personally he died for you? Have you made that? Well, I'd like to. You'd be surprised how many people don't resist at all. No one asked them. No one asked them to make a decision. And then watch what happens. Here's the telling tale. I'm telling you. You just try this. Someone like that, who's been sort of, yeah, the, the, nominally they're a Christian, but boy, it doesn't show. You know, it's just kind of goes plodding along. And then they, then they brought to decision where they reach out and they trust Christ. They surrender their heart to him and say, you're my Lord and Savior. They light up like, like a light. All of a sudden, their walk changes into an, a, a lively relationship. I've had people even angry going, why didn't they tell me about this? That particularly happened after a baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is what I was looking for all my life. And I asked everybody and they didn't tell me. You know, they were just like, (laughs) you know. Well, they probably didn't know, you know. But aren't we looking for for relationship? Don't we want to know God and walk with him? That's why people are in this thing. And I'm just telling you, the gift of a question, of a listening question, And then that asks the person the right question, allows them to make a decision, allows them to take a step forward and and open up to something. Will they or will they not move closer to God? And that's a choice no one can make for them. They must make it for themselves. 
Parents, this is how we raise children, too. They must make their own choices. But many people need someone who loves them enough to ask them the right question at the right time. They may have no idea what direction the answer may, they need is found. By asking the right question, you and I can help them discover it. But before we can ask the right question, we must have stopped talking and listened carefully. Say, stop talking and listen carefully. Now, I grant you, some people keep talking and they go round and around and around on a story. But I will listen one cycle. By the time you're doing it again, that's when I'm stopping you. I don't want to hear it again, but I heard it once. You follow this? There are people who just, are, they're, they're, it's, they're, they're, they're vomiting. You know, and I don't want to go around the circle with you. But I'll hear it once. Because, in t and look, this is how I minister in, in virtually every form. I never come into a thing with a preconceived plan. I sit down with somebody and listen. And I'm listening, and I'm going to say it here now, with one ear to the person and one ear to the Holy Spirit. It, it, and you can do this. You're, you're designed to do the same exact thing. You listen to the, what they're saying, but you're watching for that crack. You're listening. Lord, where is the point of need that you want to speak to? What do you want me to say? You don't come in with a plan. You come in with an ear that's listening. And boy, I'll tell you, that it will not fail you. As you listen carefully, God will show you right there. Ask them about that. And now you are really seeing lives changed. It's not a debate. It's not an argument. Now they're hearing you and, and you've listened to them. And so they, they respect you and they know you care enough to have listened. And then when you do ask them a question, it's not off target and you're not doing your deal on them. You're actually asking them right where they do need to talk. And now God's in the picture and he's guiding the process. Before we can ask the right question, we must have stopped talking and listened carefully. Our tendency can be to talk too much, to answer questions a person isn't asking yet. But if we'll listen with one ear to the person and the other ear to the Holy Spirit, and at some, at some point, he may show us their need and give us the right question to ask. We really don't know what answer to give someone until we know what question God wants us to ask them. Would you stand with me? Everywhere you and I go, everywhere we, you and I go through the day, there is a possibility of the Lord building a relationship and giving an opportunity. We don't have to force something. We don't come in with a, with a battle plan. But we go with our ears open. And we decide not to disqualify someone. You never know whether it can be in a... It can be someone you're talking to in a public place. It can be someone in an office. Someone who starts to open up to you and you never expected that to happen. Don't run away from it. Don't be afraid. Don't think, I don't know what to say. Of course you don't. Neither do I. No one but him. He knows what to say. And so what do I do? I, I, I say, Lord, I'm listening with them to one, with one ear. I'm listening to you with, you, to you with another what am I to ask? What am I to say to this person? I, I could tell you all kinds of stories, but over the years, it's so beautiful. This becomes part of your lifetime. As you look back on your history, the, the way God kindly put you in contact with people who are hungry, people who are open. He's divinely guides us, you know. He, he puts you next to certain neighbors. He, he puts you sitting next to somebody in a, in, in a plane at times or in, 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 at work. He's, he's involved in all of this. And he wants us to function just like the Lord Jesus. And we've seen the Lord mentor us so beautifully today. Are you willing to say, Lord, I, 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 I watch you and I want to be like you in this. Teach me. To listen and ask the right question. If you are, would you say, Lord, teach me, Lord, teach me. To, listen to listen and ask the right question? Ask the right question. Just, like you. Just like you. Lord, we do pray that with our hearts. We open up. Blessed be the Lord. You, Jesus, I just have to say it. You are so lovely. You are so compassionate. You are so kind. You are, you, you are simply amazing. 
And you've called us to be like you. Grant us hearts like yours. Grant us eyes that see people like you see them. Grant us patience and kindness, Lord. We put aside our our agendas and we become people who listen and people who listen to the Holy Spirit and allow you to speak to people. In Jesus' powerful name, if you agree with that, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.